Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When you find the person you want to marry, many of us hope our family will accept our future spouse wholeheartedly. Typically, we're less interested in what other people think, especially strangers. Today, where we live, we look back at a time in our nation's history when someone's opinion was the least of our worries. In 1958, more than a dozen states banned marriages between people of different races. Coming up, we'll learn more about the Lovings, an interracial couple who challenged Virginia's law that made it illegal for them to marry. Their fight led to a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1967. And later, we'll ask interracial couples in Connecticut about their lives and whether their marriages have been accepted within their families and within their communities. And we'll find out how the Loving v. Virginia decision years later impacted the marriage equality movement for same-sex couples. You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WNPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me on, by the phone right now is David Yelov, professor and department head of political science at the University of Connecticut. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Lovings. Who were they? Well, uh, Richard Loving and Mildred, formerly Jeter Loving, they met in the late 1950s. Mildred got pregnant, and uh, the two of them decided to uh, get married. But uh, Richard Loving was white by the definition of the Racial Integrity Act of 1924 in Virginia. Uh, Mildred was African-American, black, and thus under the laws of Virginia, they could not marry. So they ran to nearby Washington, D.C., got married, and then attempted to come back and uh, live their lives. You mentioned Virginia. So there were, what, more than a dozen states that had um, similar laws, these anti-miscegenation laws, meaning that people of different races couldn't mix. Yeah, that's correct. In 1948, just a, a decade earlier, as many as 29 of the 48 states uh, had these miscegenation laws that uh, banned interracial marriage. And really, it didn't, uh, they weren't eliminated over the next two decades to any degree, as you point out. Uh, as many as 16 or 17 states still had those laws on the books and enforced in the 1960s. And how common were um, relationships, interracial marriages, rather, at the time when Mildred and Richard met? Well, they weren't that common. Now, we, and that might explain why all of the efforts of groups like the NAACP and very often the ACLU was more focused 
on the parallel track of trying to desegregate the schools. Uh, interracial marriage wasn't uh, that common, but you know whether it was not common because of these laws, which made it illegal, or it was just simply not something that uh, people were that interested in, as late as 1958, 94%, uh, and according to a Gallup poll, uh, actually continued to oppose interracial marriage. So it wasn't the kind of thing that was kind of sweeping the nation to make this change so early. And if we look at that era, you know, with uh, whites who were in power, I'm curious, uh, among uh, black communities, what did they think of um, these types of relationships? Well, I, I, uh, there, there was a mix even of opinion within black communities. I think there was a sense, uh, as there is in, in some communities, even as late as today, that, that uh, it may not be the greatest thing uh, to have interracial marriage. Uh, you know, it obviously dates back uh, to pre-Civil War days and, uh, you know, the, the sexual assault of plantation owners that often led to uh, children of mixed couples, uh, obviously not married at that time. And so th- there was mixed feelings then, but I think what, what was not mixed, at least in the African-American and black communities, was that it should be allowed. Whether it should be encouraged is a different issue. Uh, nobody felt it should be uh, uh, prohibited. And I think that's a really, really important point, because the laws that actually uh, banned interracial marriage, especially that 1924 law, they included uh, justifications based on the superiority of the white race and the need to avoid inbreeding and mongrelization. So even in those communities that weren't sure they wanted to encourage it, they did not want it to be illegal. I'm speaking with David Yelov, professor and department head of political science at UConn. Today we're talking about the Loving v. Virginia. This is the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1967 that banned states from saying that uh, people of different races couldn't marry. Uh, Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving uh, were a Virginia couple. Uh, Mildred was black. Richard was white. They fell in love. They wanted to marry. Um, And as we heard, David, they went ahead and did so in D.C. When they came back to Virginia, they were arrested. And what was the penalty? So did they plead guilty? What was the outcome there? They they did ultimately plead guilty. Um, Well, there wasn't a verdict from a judge. Um, So they, they, they fought it, obviously, initially, but the law was very much against them. And the actual uh, a penalty very controversial was a form of banishment. Um, it said that they had to leave uh, the state of Virginia. Now, what's interesting is normally banishment says you can't come back. This penalty said they couldn't come back for a period of 25 to 30 years together, but they were able to come back separately, which is a not exactly the way we think of banishment as a as a crime. You you are each allowed to come separately. What you can't do is come together. And uh, again, this is 50 years since that U.S. Supreme Court decision, so they continued to fight that banishment um, from their home state of Virginia. Um, This case is part of a movie that was released uh, late uh, last year. Uh, But in 2007, NPR spoke with one of the attorneys who represented the Lovings. His name was Bernard Cohen. Um, And here he is talking about um, Mildred and Richard, the plaintiffs that he represented. They were very simple people who were not interested in winning any civil rights principle. They just were in love with one another and wanted the right to live together as husband and wife in Virginia without interference from uh, officialdom. When I told Richard that this case was in all likelihood going to go to the Supreme Court of the United States, he became wide-eyed and his jaw dropped. 
and it did go before the Supreme Court. Um, what was this decision? Tell us more about it, David. Well, it was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, and it was rooted in the fundamental appreciation for the right of marriage. And that, that's a pretty important point, because uh, many of the battles over equal protection at that time uh, were based on the, on the justification or the fight that uh, you're treating the two races, people from the different races, different, uh, differently. And thus, that's the form of discrimination. The defense that was provided very often um, by states, the 16 or 17 states that still had them on the books, th their basic defense was, forget the reasons why we passed this. Ultimately, it treats the two races the same. It says you're not allowed uh, to marry outside of your race. And I think what the U.S. Supreme Court did uh, unanimously was build on, on other decisions that had uh, swept away uh, anti-cohabitation laws and said, fundamentally, the right to marriage is so important and so critical an aspect of citizenship that to deny it on this kind of basis would be unconstitutional. And so that's how they did it. And what was the response from these um, 16 states? Obviously, they couldn't enforce this ban anymore. I think most of these states were in the South. I mean, um, any resistance when that decision came down? There was some resistance. Uh, we know about the resistance in Alabama. And the reason we know about the resistance in Alabama is because uh, the Nixon administration in 1970, not normally viewed as on the <laughs> cutting edge of, of civil rights enforcement, but they actually had to uh, send uh, officials down to help enforce the decree because Alabama was ignoring the Loving versus Virginia decision. Uh, and so they had to make sure and help. They, they sided with the couples that were seeking to enforce that particular Supreme Court decision. We haven't had anything like that since then, but I can tell you as late as 2000, uh, Alabama, for example, had that law still technically on the books. They didn't actually take it off the books until uh, you know, recently, 2000. And how did this decision um, years later impact uh, the fight among same-sex couples for marriage equality for them as well? Well, I think what it did, if you look at the Loving versus Virginia decision and the way that it, it, it trumpeted this notion of a fundamental right uh, to marry, I, I, a lot of that language from Chief Justice Earl Warren's opinion for the unanimous court there are echoes of it in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion in the recent Obergefell decision uh, recognizing same-sex marriage as a right. The notion of marriage being a basic civil right of man, fundamental to our very existence and survival, those were Chief Justice Warren's words, that very much was an echo in the battle over same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court so many years later. We're talking about this couple, uh, Mildred and Richard Loving. Uh, before the movie, do you think people knew about this case, David, or knew about this uh, this fight that this couple waged? You know, I, I don't think so. I think I think this is not a decision that necessarily echoes so many years later. I think we we, we look back at it and. We don't think of uh, interracial marriage and the issues surrounding miscegenation laws as a 20th century issue. We kind of put, push it back uh, to Jim Crow days. But the truth is, this is a recent time. <laughs> I was alive when this decision was handed down. And uh, you know, the recognition that this is not that long ago, it, same, the same-sex marriage battle, I think, brought this decision back because uh, there really was a feeling by many litigators that it would be tough, difficult to distinguish between the two.
And we know today that the importance of our civil rights is still being debated. Um, at the time that you know, we're doing this show, um, there have been reports that the Trump administration is planning to reduce funding for the civil rights division within the federal government. You know, what's the impact uh, when that kind of announcement comes out? Well, the truth is uh, the aspects of enforcement, particularly whether the enforcement of certain laws is aggressive or is not aggressive, that is very much something that changes from administration to administration. Justice Department lawyers have told us that you can actually see a, a change in tone, let's say, from uh, the, Clinton, the Clinton administration to the George W. Bush administration, then to the Obama administration. So it, it, it can't be too surprising. On, on the campaign trail, Donald Trump said that he opposed the Obama administration's steps to revitalize fair housing enforcement, for example. And uh, hate crime enforcement was something that a lot of money was poured into during the uh, Obama administration. That is probably something that, uh, while the Justice Department is not going to end hate crime enforcement, the issue is going to be resources and the issue is going to be the aggressiveness of the enforcement, and that is going to change significantly. I've been speaking with David Yaloff, professor and department head of political science at UConn. He also specializes in constitutional law, judicial politics, and executive branch politics. David, thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. We've heard about the Lovings who fought 50 years ago for the right to marry. Coming up, we'll talk with Connecticut residents who are in interracial marriages. Now, more people have married outside the race or ethnicity over the last 30 years. Does that mean we're becoming a more tolerant society? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Talking about race is complicated, and it's a topic that deserves further discussion on future shows. Today, we're focusing in on interracial marriages. This year marks 50 years since the nation's highest court ruled it's unconstitutional for states to ban people of different races from marrying. In late last year, a film about their life, this interracial couple from Virginia Mildred and Richard Loving, was released. That movie is called Loving. Here's a clip from the film. It portrays one of the plaintiff lawyers, Bernard Cohen, talking to Richard Loving about the case right before it was heard before the U.S. Supreme Court. Is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. And tell the judge... Tell a judge I love my wife. That's a clip from the movie Loving, released late last year. Now, how common are these marriages? Now, demographers have studied data about intermarriages or marriages between a Hispanic and non-Hispanic person or marriages between different racial groups, interracial, including whites, blacks, Asians, Native Americans, and mixed-race individuals. The Pew Research Center says intermarriage has become more popular in, in a 30-year period. About 15% of all new marriages in the U.S. in 2010 were between spouses of a different race or ethnicity, compared to 1980, when only 6% of interracial marriages were around. Now, our next guests are in an interracial marriage, and they live in Cromwell. I want to welcome to our studio today, Shannon and Rasan Yearwood. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'll start with you, Shannon. You're not from Connecticut. Tell me about your upbringing uh, outside of, of the blue state of Connecticut. Sure. Well, I am from the Midwest, from Minnesota, and it's a great state. It's very progressive. Rasan and I actually met in college in Minnesota uh, much longer ago than I will admit. 
and mm-hmm. we have really had a great experience both in Minnesota and then coming to Connecticut, but we had a short intermission in Chicago, too. They're both really great. They're all really great places to live. Is that how you remember the story, Rasan? Yeah, I mean, we were in college together, and uh, I'm from New York City um, and live in Connecticut now. But, yeah, we, we go back, and actually, if you think back 20-plus years, um, I ended up moving Shannon onto campus as an obligation of all the football players at college at the time. <laughs> and so you, be, you were friends, and then years later, you reconnected. Yes, we were really, really very good friends for about 15 years before we even uh, tried dating. And so we had reconnected at one of our good friends' marriage uh, weddings, and he, they're actually in an interracial marriage as well. And so we had um, really met up there and decided we would try this whole dating thing. Rasan had lived in Connecticut at that point. I was in Chicago. I had a lot of pets. He had a lot of children, and we thought it would be easier for me to relocate all of our furry children. And now we are one big, very big, happy family and have five kids that we are very proud of and very just love so much. So a blended family living in Cromwell, Connecticut. Shannon's white. Rasan is black. What was the reaction um, within your family when you started dating? Yeah, my family really was very accepting. It was, um, you know, I think they just... We have a really progressive family. My brother is gay, and I think my being in an interracial relationship was kind of par for the course for where we were going. And I really, you know, I really didn't, we didn't experience any issues. My mom absolutely adores her son-in-law and all of the many kids that we have. So, you know, we've been really blessed. And I am so blessed, too. I have the best in-laws anybody could ever have, and I was fully welcomed into the family within about a second of meeting everybody. So I, they're all in New York, and I just we love going down there. That's, it's been really great. And Rasan? Yeah, very similar. I mean, growing up in New York City, there's just so much diversity. Um, my older brother is gay. My older sister is gay. So for my family, the idea of you loving and dating whoever you want to was always something that was very um, available to us. So... By the time Shannon and I um, got together and began dating, um, you know, the, the diversity of relationships in the household had already blossomed as such that the idea of, you know, marrying a white woman um, was no more abstract than the idea if my sister decided to marry just another woman or my brother to marry another male. It was just kind of an accepted, you know, whoever you love, you love, and it's up to you to make sure that relationship is you know, surrounded by love and, and happiness. So you grew up, grew up in a black community in New York, but you went to a, a predominantly white school? Yeah, I grew up in Harlem on 147th Street in St. Nick. Hey, guys out there. Um, but, you know, my whole life, my parents highly valued education, so I ended up going to Bank Street College for Children, and that was a, a private school where, you know, uh, Robert De Niro's kids were there, um, you know, Bill Cosby's kids were there. So it was a very progressive um, kind of private school where we even called teachers by first names. We studied alternative history. I didn't take my first American history class until high school uh, because we were studying, you know, uh, the Native Americans and the Iroquois in upstate New York. Uh, then I went on to Riverdale Country Day School and then Trevor Day. So I went to private school my whole life where there was probably, you know, you could three to five percent African-American students in these schools. And so my inter- interacting with white people and dating white women um, you know, wasn't, it started much earlier on in my life than, than college. Um, and, and again, part of that's being in New York City, which is just super progressive, 
any other pieces just because you end up going to these schools that are predominantly white, um, affluent schools in New York. Now, if you were living in a southern state, do you feel like your your uh, relationship and people's response to you would be similar? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, as a 41-year-old um, person that's lived in a number of different cities, that the world in general is more progressive now than it was, you know, 30 years ago. I think that even in Connecticut or in New York, there are still times you're going to get people looking at you. Um, but I think that's par for the course. I think that's the same anytime people see something that's different, they will tend to look more than not look um, just because it's different. Um, but I've never had anyone approach me or say anything to me. We've traveled down to Tennessee through Kentucky and Virginia um, and never had any you know, issues down there. But I think certainly if we were to go into like rural Alabama or Mississippi, uh, we may get more looks than we get in Cromwell, Connecticut. <laughs> Shannon, what do you think? That, well, I, I also want to go back a little bit to the family question. You know, um, when Rasana and I started dating and really getting, um, bringing our love, our relationship to that level, my father had actually been gone for several years, and he was uh, somebody who was born in 1913. And I do, he really was very progressive, and he really fought very hard um, on behalf of people's rights as an attorney in Minnesota, and. I do I do think that it would have been a little bit different because even though he was very progressive and very um, understanding, I think it would have been a little bit difficult for him at first because of the generation he was born in. So when I was reflecting on the family um, situation, you know, I was really thinking of more my mom who in this day and age, it's really, um, she's really, I think, become a lot more open-minded and a lot more accepting of what her kids do. Um, and plus, we're not in college anymore, so I think she's learned there's just so many lessons that go so far. <laughs> so I do, you know, I do, I haven't spent too much time in a lot of uh, states that are in the South. I do love Kentucky, but we haven't been there together. Um, but I do, you know, coming from the North and coming from these really progressive states, just hearing of the politics and everything that I've been exposed to, I do wonder if it would be a lot more difficult for us um, than than it has been here. And I bring up the, the response uh, to you because even though we are uh, in the Northeast in a progressive state like Connecticut, isolated incidents do happen. You know, just earlier this year, there was a story at a Stamford, Connecticut, an interracial couple found the N-word spray painted on their garage. And that couple, when interviewed, said they felt they were targeted because they were an interracial couple. So those incidents do happen. And in that sense, you know, how do we respond? Mm-hmm. Well, that, you know, I, I think, and Rasan's very familiar with my pestering him at home, but I, you know, I worry a lot about our kids. It's, it, I think that we live in a great community, but I do think that they are going to have a little bit of a harder time. They're going to have to work a little bit harder um, because they're black, and I don't think that that's fair, but I do think that that is what's going to happen. You know, they're pretty sheltered now, so I think when they move out of Cromwell, they'll probably be exposed to um, more difficulties than they've had, and I worry a lot about are we preparing them for that? How do we prepare them for that? How do we not scare the heck out of them while we're preparing them for that? Um, and really, by the time that they're going into college and, and going into their adult lives, hopefully the world will continue to progress in a positive way. I have some fears with, with how it's turned lately, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
eternally optimistic that we'll get to the other side of this and continue progress. So, I wanted to find a little bit out more about uh, Rasan in terms of you know your blended family. Uh, Shannon had mentioned um, just you know wondering like what how your kids will um, navigate race um, as they grow older. I mean, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a you know it's a, it's an interesting question, kind of interwoven into a lot of different questions. Um, like she said, I mean, I think the kids. The kid's idea of race is significantly different than mine growing up because of where I grew up, because times were different. I mean, New York City, um, I grew up in, you know, I was born in the 70s, grew up really in the 80s. And for anyone that lived in a major urban environment, uh, predominantly in, a, in, in particular in a black community, when you had crack cocaine kind of running through and there was a lot of police issues um, that were kind of built off what happened in the 60s and the 70s and segregation and everything else. So I think my kid's understanding of race is significantly different than mine um, because, again, they live in a community that's predominantly white. They don't feel the racial issues. I'm not sure how aware they are of everything going on around them. Um, and so I think that, you know, we need to raise them to be aware of the realities of the world. But, you know, it, it's certainly possible that they can go through their lives and, and never be called a name or never have to, in, 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 you know, have the a word painted on the garage. And we're certainly hopeful for that. But if that does happen... Um, I like to think that they'll be prepared to handle it, you know, as responsible citizens and and engage in the appropriate uh, manners. Let's take some calls now. Bill's calling from East Haddam. Bill, you're on the show. Hey, how are you? Thank you for taking my call. Yep, go ahead. Uh, I I was in an interracial marriage. Uh, I'm white. My wife was mixed uh, from Louisiana. She was Creole. Um, and uh, in the in the mid 1970s, we were married. My mother was from Georgia, and she was absolutely opposed to it. My father had traveled and had dated women of other cultures and ethnicities. Um, the reason that I called was, so uh, I think that language creates problems. The, the, the use of the term race is scientifically a falsehood. There is only one human race. And what do these children call themselves? Do they call themselves white or black or mixed race? Even the term race adds to the confusion. The terms white and black are also kind of artificial constructs. And what I came to conclude was, even though they're cultural concepts, the idea that we reinforce this idea of, of uh, instead of ethnicity or, or nationality, we use this term race when there's only one human race. And, and I often say we all descended from Africans. We're all of African descent. And so I think it's important when you're having the conversation to use the accurate words. Um, and, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to get that out there because you keep saying race or mixed race, but the term race itself, is, as far as geneticists, and science has generally been completely, there, there are not distinct races. There are different variations of one human race. Well, thank and you. I, I'd thank love you. to hear the comment yeah, thank uh, you about for, that. Thank you for your comment. Um, you know, we had this discussion before the show, too. Um, we'd heard from a, a listener who um, says that she's in an interracial marriage, but she prefers to call it interheritage mm. marriage. What do you think about that, Rasan? I think he makes an interesting point. I mean, the idea of classifying people into categories is unfortunately a, a very human construct. And I think if we didn't have race, 
it would be eye color or hair color or the size of your nose, the size of your lips. I mean, you know, clearly the idea of racial racial uh, differentiation in this country comes back to, you know, uh, bringing slaves over from Africa and, and having to identify people differently um, in order to, you know, uh, categorize a better or a lesser group of people. But I think he's right uh, because at the end of the day, you know, you're a construct of your experiences and exposures. And so, a you know, if I was um, a black kid born in Glastonbury to two doctors, my experience would be very different than being a black child born in Harlem mm-hmm. uh, to an eventual sitcom writer and a teacher. And I think that, you know, the idea of being black... Um, I think as black people, uh, we're just beginning to recognize that just being black, being black can mean a rainbow of experiences, that not all of us grew up in urban environments, not all of us grew up uh, disenfranchised and poor, and that there are different experiences um, and that we have to recognize and accept even one another as black people, even when we don't sound or talk or share the same experiences as those that may look like us. Do you take offense when you hear interracial marriage? Uh, I may going forward. Um, you know, I, I never really thought of it. Um, you know, obviously the idea of race as a man-made construct, I've in many ways just accepted that term as the term that we use. Um, but I think the last caller really kind of maybe brought me to think about what is a better way to think about different groups of people, again, without minimizing how they may want themselves to be identified but being conscious of the fact that they may not want to be categorized in a race. For me, it's, it's okay. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join the conversation today. We're talking about uh, people who marry outside, how they identify, or their race. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. When we come back, we're going to hear from another Connecticut ca- couple, and we're going to take your comments. And do you think society's perceptions are changing? Join the conversation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about interracial marriages 50 years after a landmark Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia. And we wanted to speak to people in our state who are married to someone outside the race. Joining us now is another Connecticut couple, Norm Garrick and James Hanley. Hanley, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. So uh, tell me a little bit about how you met. I'll start with you, James. Well, um, I work at Sydney Studio, uh, the movie theater at Trinity College, and um, we were the founding place for the uh, Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. And in 1988, uh, that was our first festival, and Norman was attending, and that's where we met. (laughs) And Norm, what do you remember? (laughs) Uh, More or less the same thing. (laughs) I think we do have some... Different versions of this story when we get to the details. Mm-hmm. And tell me where you're both originally from. I'm from Jamaica. And James? Um, I was born in England and uh, came to the U.S. to go to school and have uh, been here since. So when people see you, what do you think they first notice mm. as a couple? Well, I think they probably notice the chemistry between us, mm-hmm. perhaps. That's the thing. <laughs> um, we tend to be constantly communicating, I think, that in ways that you know, indicate that we're mm-hmm. you know, together. And so I think that's the first thing people would notice. What about you, Norm? I'm not sure. I, I, I think it, it differs dep- depending on where we are. Um, 
uh, we, you know, we, we have lived in various places and been in various places, and I think it varies whether or not we're in Jamaica or in Switzerland or in the UK or here in the US. So uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult for me to say. Now, we're pegging the show to the Loving uh, Court decision back in 1967. What, did that, what does that case mean to each of you? Well, I didn't know a lot about the history. I mean, it's always been this iconic case, you know, these people that were very important in terms of changing civil rights law, but also were very important in terms of um, setting a foundation for helping to change um, um, the, the status of gay couples. Um, but seeing the movie was really a fascinating experience, getting to know these um, very simple people that were really just wanting to live their, live their lives. And what was most fascinating for me of the story is the realization that this was just 50 years ago that we had this insidious extension of um, slavery in America where people could be, um, could be put in prison for being married. It was really shocking. To, to, the realization was really shocking to me. Now, you are from Jamaica. What is uh, the perceptions of you as a couple when you go and visit family? Well, I, I think the main issue there is getting over the fact that we are a, a gay couple. Um, but I, I think we have dealt with um, those issues. Uh, we have been together for 28 years, so uh, we have dealt with it on, on the basis of our families. What is fascinating is having the, um, the, the formal recognition of marriage and how that changes our relationship to the Jamaican state. For example, Jamaica has this reputation for being very homophobic. But when we land in Kingston and we present ourselves as uh, a married couple, then the Jamaican state treats it, adjusts and treats it as a normal state. And they, it, it's really fascinating to see how oh, they have adjusted. And James, what about you? What does a loving decision mean for you? Well, I think for me, I, I had a similar reaction to the film um, that it was sort of like a, a, a wake-up call, education kind of thing of the details behind it. But I think one of the connections, Norman used the word slavery as, as, as part of that, and, and the power of slavery and the violence that that was, that, that, that maintained that system. Um, the thing that it reminded me of is that all of these things that are expressed through laws in some places that are really limiting people, and it's about power and control, is the implication of violence. It's not even an implication, it's a direct violence to people's way of life and to their persons. And that the message is that if you don't do what you're told, you're going to suffer and physical violence will follow. And I think that that film, it's, it, it's a curious paradox to me. It's a very quiet film, but also very powerful in what it says that not so long ago, these laws were in place and they used words that were demeaning and controlling these words like miscegenation, you know, miss something, that somehow there's something wrong here. Um, and, and that these are uh, all about power and control, which, of course, we're getting a new lesson about right now. When we're talking about uh, the gay community, how big of a deal is race today? Huh. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's very interesting. And it, the gay community has gone through, I think, um, a a lot of good changes um, in recent years, a lot of uh, advances of sort of awareness. But 
I think that the gay community had a lot of problems with discrimination generally for many, many years during the times when all of the sort of coming out and the celebration of gay culture was mainstream, if you like, and being celebrated widely. It wasn't dealing with racism. And for instance, in Hartford, um, you could go to a gay bar where they'd be counting the number of dark-skinned people coming in, and they'd decide when they had too many, and then they'd start carding people and saying, well, you know, we can't co you can't come in for some reason. And I think that that was something um, very insidious that was hard to fight. Um, but I think that in many ways that battle was joined, and I think it's better than it was. But these things are very subtle underlying things that suddenly pop out in ways that control people's lives that at the time you figure, what can you do? You know, you've just been refused entry to a place because you've been perceived to be other, mm -hmm. and, and, and the other is being expressed as a form of power. And Norm? I, I think um, the gay community is a reflection of um, the, 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 the more mainstream community, and a lot of the, the issues of racism, of discrimination, um, but even beyond that is, is uh, issues of ageism and, and things like that. It reflects mainstream attitudes. But I think at the same time, I think um, the gay community is a better place in some ways. You can find your niche where you don't have to be exposed to some of the, the worst element of the racial attitudes in America. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking with interracial couples living in Connecticut, pegged to the 50 years since the landmark Supreme Court decision loving v. Virginia. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Mason from Old Saybrook. Mason, you're on the show. Uh, good morning. I, I love this show. Thank you for doing it. Thank I, you. I, I want to know how your guests feel about um, uh, the current political uh, situation. We've had our first biracial president and uh, our first black family in the White House who uh, were dignified and um, uh, a source of pride for our country. Uh, they've been replaced by a, uh, uh, an intolerant, angry guy. Um, uh, is this just something that uh, – how do you um, – uh, are we um, going to regress? I think the frankly, I think the Supreme Court is safe because I don't think uh, the the balance of the court will change during the next four years unless Justice Ginsburg would happen to to uh, pass away. But um, how do you feel about the fact that there was um, an angry white male uh, backlash to uh, the? presidency of um, the historic presidency of Barack Obama. Thank you for that question. We have four minutes, so uh, we may not have time for everyone to answer that. But I'll start with Shannon. We'll try to try to get everyone in. Shannon. Sure. Uh, I'm terrified and not necessarily for the actual president, but for the big permission slip it has seemed to give to the general public to be able to say, what wasn't acceptable and what we were trying so hard to move beyond and grow as a society is now, I think, really backstepping in it. It scares me that that it's suddenly much more acceptable to be really open about, um, you know, being prejudiced and, and just in, in violence to use what James was saying before. I think 
you know, that that's the stuff that really scares me. And I know Rasan and I kind of see things differently. He tends to try and calm me down a little bit <laughs> because I am really um, I'm really disappointed in where we've gone as a society and in so much of the the actions that we've seen since the election that have just just really started like wildfire. And it does worry me that it's just going to keep having more fuel and more fuel on it. So luckily, my husband's very good at calming me down and helping me get recentered. But it is it is scary times, I think. And again, while we're talking about civil rights today, right, but what we've seen in our country, the struggles and uh, the fight for equality. Uh, James, did you want to chime in about uh, what you see the future hold? We just have a couple of minutes. Well, I just see I, I, I like the word resistance, and I think resist at every turn. Uh, and I think to a certain extent your expectations count because if you uh, somehow transmit the idea that you're under threat and you're going to fold in the face of that threat, then I think that people will feel empowered to use discrimination and violence and threats of all kinds. And so I think that it's very important that people who have a sense of themselves and realize that, like in, for instance, your own personal relationship, that that's your personal relationship, that's your life, it's nobody else's business to tell you, what, tell you about it. And in every expression of this vulgarian violence that we're engulfed in now, it has to be resisted. Rasan. Yeah, just quickly, I think that the, you know, for me, as again, as a black male, I think the election of Trump is really just a reflection of who we really are as a country. And I think that we fell into a false sense of security uh, with the election of Obama. I mean, you know, the Trayvon Martins, the gardeners in New York, the young the gentleman in South Carolina getting shot in the back by police officers. I mean, those are all things that always existed. Um, I think that the election of Trump, for many white people, is the first time they get to feel disenfranchised in their own country which is what many minorities and immigrants have felt since day one. And Norm. Yes, I, I agree. I, I think um, this nonsense about post-racial society that we got with the election of Obama, I think the, all of this has put light to that. And, but it's also hopeful. I think back to um, Ronald Reagan and um, the, the, during the period when AIDS was rampant and his reaction to that. And what came out of that was a backlash that was what that changed the culture and in fact probably led to gay marriage and also um, you know th these kinds of changes can result in good backlash in if we are willing to resist. Well, I want to thank all of our guests for talking very candidly about their lives uh, and about uh, race in this country. Um, it can be a taboo subject, but we should keep talking about it, and we will. Thank you so much to Shannon, Rasan, James, and Norm. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.